0: I love it. I, I love the whole entire idea of, of your podcast. I think it's fantastic, and I like I like the relation of eighteen holes. I really appreciate that in regards to the game. And by the way, I I, I listened to that. I love Malcolm Glad, Gladwell. By the way, and the only time I've ever been mad yeah at him is <laughs> when I listened to that that pod on golf, and I was like, I think he just missed it. You know, I just if you look at golf only through that prism. And you're just not aware of the sport and all the public opportunities there are to play and the outdoor exercise and, and the camaraderie and all those things. And you just look at through the prisms of a fence of a very private club and you don't know anything else about the, the benefits of golf and the, uh, you know, the opportunity for every type of person to play the game. I could see how you could have that narrow view. And I'm not knocking it, because I think I've probably done that. It's no different than me driving by an office complex and saying, you know, that really
1: should be a golf course.
0: (laughs) We've all done that, right?
1: I'm Billy McGee, and you're listening to 18 Opportunities. Welcome back. Today, we cover Golf is a Game of Tools, Part 2, with a very special guest, Connor better known by his twitter handle the society of golf historians and his podcast talking golf history
0: i have two clubs i belong to here in town one is like almost across the street from my house and the whole idea was i was gonna have it so my kids could play golf because the course i belong to and care about and play all my rounds at outside of my travel schedule, is uh, Bel Air Country Club, which is the oldest course in Florida. 36 holes designed by Donald Ross in 1915 on the Gulf of Mexico. But it's an hour 20 from my house.
1: Wow. So you put in an hour and 20 drive just to get in around.
0: Well, think of it more. It's really almost three hours round and back
1: of driving to play golf. Although Donald Ross, 1915, Bel
0: Air. Yeah. And the course is originally 1897.
1: So, yeah, it's gorgeous. I hope to connect you with Brian. My interview with him was sort of serendipity. Brian is a 3-3. Yep. Plays out of Fox Hollow. And he has played two sets of clubs his entire life. And I interviewed him the day before he was about to get fitted at Club Champion. Oh, yeah, I love Club Champion. My clubs are Club Champ. Yeah, so he, he played... Tom Watson, Golden Rams for 20 years. Oh, really? How cool is that? And then DCIB, is DCIB Blades, 20 years or so as well.
0: Yeah, that's cool. He wasn't as crazy as I was, but he's crazy nonetheless. What kind of crazy were you? Oh, dude, I, I gave up modern equipment for seven years. And the last two of them, I only played clubs from the 1800s with gutta-percha golf balls. Oh, so you play
1: true hickory-style golf.
0: I don't anymore. I went, I, I went back to the dark side. But my whole thing was, as a golf historian, was I need to know, you know what it was like to play in the, in the 1920s. And then I, I, I played that for like five years. And then the argument was, I, I really love pre-1900 golf. So then the argument then became, okay, well... Let's go back further. Let me dedicate two years of my life to playing gutty golf, which is like the most archaic form of golf other than playing the feathery, which are extremely hard to find and play because all the clubs
1: are made of wood. Yeah. And you need a top hat and farm of geese out uh, outside your backyard too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Top hat for the feathers. So I went, I went down the rabbit hole like few have ever done. And then I went back to Hickory's for a while and then one day I was on the rain or no, I was playing, a, playing a, a golf with a buddy of mine and he was like, here hit my modern driver. I hadn't swung a modern driver in like seven years and I hit like a five yard draw, 300 yard drive. I
1: mean, it was just, I was just sick
0: and that took me right back to playing moderns. <laughs>
1: wow. You know, it was just too,
0: I mean, it was too much.
1: Wow. You know, as we're going to be talking about golf as a game of tools, one of the key reasons why we love golf is that it has this tool making and tinkering that was an essential part of the game. Really only up until recently, most avid golfers had a little workbench in their garage. Oh, sure. they re- A lot of people regrip their clubs, but I, it's a little bit more
0: than that. I, I, we've lost some of the romance- because way back when, I mean, it took a village to raise a golf course, you know, all these artisans that built clubs, they were all wrapped around the, 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 you know, the golf courses, which would have been, can you imagine how amazing that would have been, right? You're playing 18 holes and your shaft breaks and you walk down to old Tom Morris's shop and he basically puts a, a hickory shafted head on there. You take a couple swings, feels good. Or you go to Mr. Forgan's shop. And say you know I need a new driver and he basically whittles it down or his, his folks do for you right there. I mean there was a true beauty and an artisan neighbor, uh, uh, an artisan um, flavor to golf that really we haven't seen probably since the 1930s, which is unfortunate. But um, yeah, I just I love that about it, and that, I think that's probably you know every instrument I have, um, I have probably 200 clubs from the pre 1900 era in my collection. And not a single one of them, and I mean not a single one of them, is the same. I mean, I've got, I don't know, 50 cliques. Every clique is so different, even from the same manufacturer. It's got different swing weights and different, a little bit different look. And you know, it's kind of hand-hammered into shape. And it's just each one of them is a unique piece of art.
1: Yeah. So let's actually – so in the last episode that that Drew and Blake and I recorded – we yeah. actually focused on cliques and putters because in John Lowe's Concerning Golf, he dedicates an entire chapter to whether the debate of whether or not you know a serious golfer should be using a clique yeah. or a putter. And, and, he meant, and he and he was referring to a wooden putter. Yeah, it's like a one iron.
0: Yeah, it's like a one iron. Yeah, but, but here's the thing is, there's more than one type of clique. That's the weird thing. So it's really... Yes, the original clique that he's referring to it was actually a putter. It's just a metal putter. But there was also a clique that was a 20-degree iron, which was essentially your one iron. So when he's, he's saying clique, he's not talking about the one iron, and somebody's just grabbing it towards you know the bottom of the club. He's actually talking about a cut-down clique with even less
1: loft. It was just they didn't have a name for a metal putter, so they were calling it a putting clique. When you speak of what it would be like to work with the club makers or get a club, I have a little section to read to you from 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 concerning golf on that point. Yeah. Here he's talking about finding a club maker to make you a really good club and you might get a kick out of this. If a half empty pipe lies beside the club maker, offer him a cigar and mention that you were afraid that is not as good as you would have wished, Being the last of the box, and at the same time, giving him to understand that another box is expected that evening. Yeah, the cigar having been accepted and lighted, you may, in the course of conversation, allude to a very fine putter made by a rival clubmaker, which, you will tell your friend, is being much talked about and copied. This will almost certainly be a winning card to play, for there's much jealousy among the profession. And as likely as not, the remark will be made that so and so, naming the rival maker, has about as much idea of fashioning a putter as he has of successfully solving the problem of aerial navigation.
0: <laughs> I mean, they, write, they wrote so well, didn't they? I mean, it's just there's an artistry even in that. I, I, you know, it's funny because when I start, first started playing Hickories, this would have been, hmm, it would have been 2008. Um, there were a bunch of gentlemen in Iowa. Russ Fisher was probably one of the best of them. You have Tad Moore down in the South who literally were kind of following in the footsteps. They weren't hand hammering, you know, club heads, but they were, there was an artistry certainly in making these Hickory era shafts. So you'd break a shaft and you'd go to these guys and they'd say, you know, what kind of shaft do you need? you, are you a senior player? Are you a good player? And, The whole process, I mean, these are modern times, mind you. Oh, absolutely. There's a row of shafts, just like you would have back in the day. And we're feeling the weight. We're trying to bend it to feel the flexibility. We're comparing it to the shafts I have in my set. If it's maybe, I I would always opt for a a slightly stiffer shaft. And so we'd put a, a head on there, like temporarily, and we'd compare it to the shafts in my set to see how it'd play. Or I'd even take it out with a little more width initially and we'd come back and he'd sand it down. If it was too flat, you know, if there was too little flex and it was just a trial and error. And this is modern time. This is 2008. So you can imagine how cool that time period was where you walk into a pro shop and there's 400 shafts on the ground. Old Tom Morris is eyeing you up and down trying to figure out what kind of player you are. And he's picking out the shaft. That's going to be most suitable for your swing. Yes. I mean that's a, I mean talk about we go to club champion right to be to be fitted today and there's all this science but they, there's a loss
1: of I don't know there's a human loss there right? Well, of, I I think I think the good club fitters still have that that instinct. I really do. I I believe I they also yeah. have the 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 technology and the metrics to validate which back in the day would have been more trial and error. Yeah. And I've seen, by the way, the Northwest Hickory stick players, uh, Rob Alschweed, he actually Yeah, I know Rob real well. Good friend. Yeah. So Rob real good friend. Rob gave me a club from that came from Eastmoreland from the very first golf pro who was from Scotland. Oh, that's cool. And he's that guy, right? So when whenever the Northwest Hickory Stick players come together i played a Gearheart when they had the cent centennial or actually it was more than a centennial it was 125 years yeah 1892 yeah. i believe yeah right? so, so, they, so celebrate. they celebrated the 125th and he along with a few others they're just there with their tackle basically their tackle boxes and all their gear for rob i know the golf is important but it's really about the the craftsmanship yeah
0: and 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 the relationships i mean you find a person who plays those old
1: sticks you know you're going to be their friend so i have a question for you because right now in golf twitter with the the USJ report on distance, there is the beginning of rumblings of like maybe we've gone too far with technology and then and on a future episode I, I'm gonna bring someone in to talk about like the very cutting edge of like driver technology because I'm actually of the opinion we're probably close to the plateau. I do believe that we could be maybe there'll be future technology jumps, but I almost feel like we're at that time of like the wound ball era and steel shafts so that we've made, like, a number of big jumps recently. Sure. But really, once you have the wound ball era and steel shafts, there wasn't a lot of, there was incremental changes, but very incremental for the next 60 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, the argument is that I tell people when we talk about history is, you know, everybody thinks the Pro V1, you know, changed the game, and to an extent, obviously, it did but the number one change in the history of the game of golf, any invention you want to name is the Haskell ball. Hundred percent. I mean, it literally destroyed golf courses in its first two years. I mean, you look at every great course that we consider great in the United States. Every single one of them can be traced back to either a renovation to accommodate the Haskell ball or a complete elimination and building a new course. Marion is a great example of that. Marion, its its course goes back to the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And in 19, I want to say 10, I might be wrong on that, somewhere around the 1910s, they abandoned the old club and they start the two new courses that exist there today. And they were late to go. Chicago Golf Club was 5,500 yards, 5,700 yards when Charles Blair McDonald designed it. It was one of the latest to rest restore the course in the nineteen twenty in nineteen twenties by Seth Raynor and expand the course in that sixty five hundred yard range. Right, but that course was completely obsolete for about fifteen years. So, like the Haskell destroys history. I mean, it, as much as we want to complain, it's like it was the end all be all of jumps and tech for everybody. Right now, we see the pros. Right, the pros can hit it crazy distances but the average golfer is still hitting it. The average golfer, mind you, this is not the premier, is still hitting the ball like 220 yards off the tee. Yeah,
1: 100%. Yeah, I'm of the opinion when I think about the issue where people talk about the distance issue or the club issue, I'm a decent amateur. I'm like a 5'4 right now. And I'll admit the clubs have made the game easier for players like me. Like Maybe I wouldn't be a 5'4. Maybe I'd be like a 7.5 like I was three years ago were it not for some of the technology innovations but for me those incremental changes are are 100% more beneficial and increase my enjoyment of the game and when I had Drew and Blake on we've always been talking about doing a Persimmon and Blades tournament so returning more to like the 80s sure like the clubs that friend Brian played for you know, many years, you know, true blades or even persimmons and Blake now is playing, you know, he's, you know, just, you know, just turned 30, not too many, not too long ago. And so for him, persimmons and blades feels like the hickory sticks. Sure. Yeah. You know, I remember playing those. You're, you're probably.
0: No, I started really late. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I literally, I don't think I've ever played a wound ball. That's how late I, I start. I mean, I've played it, you know, going oh. back to playing hickories, but.
1: I started in the era of the pro V really so I mean I started late in life yeah I used to play wound like titleists were all wound balls yeah the 100 right yeah well no I played dt90s so those, those are the ones I played so uh, dt90 compression uh, and they had a Balada version so I never I did not play the Balada version uh, I bought them every now and then but I would cut them yeah smiley faces within yeah within five holes or something. Or, or even just impact them. I think, you know, I, I really think the Ballada Ball began to lose favor with the rise of the metal woods because they used to still have grooves in those metal woods. You know, I kind of say, like, look, the wound ball really hit the scene in 1900 and didn't leave for 100 years. Yeah, I mean, it's the longest running ball other than the feathery. There is an evolution. So the ball evolves, the game evolves, and yet the game is still to this day, similar. And have you had an opportunity to read Concerning Golf? I know a lot of people know about it, but not everybody's read it. Yeah, yes, I have. You might remember, he goes into depth about the wound ball and he he really dives deep into the idea that people are saying like, well, the scores haven't changed. So why should we worry about the wound ball? We're hearing the same arguments, aren't we today? Yeah. That is history.
0: History is everyone... Yeah. Everyone makes the same argument over the history of the game. Yeah.
1: That's what you find. I mean, the exact same argument. And and golf as a game of tools is to really go into this in an even deeper way because because the ball itself actually had a lot of tool making to even make the ball. And then manufacturing led to the wound ball. And now, you know, chemical innovation and new polymers led to the Pro V1 and the, you know, the new uh, composite balls. Uh, But it's that embracing of technology. And that's something that's very much what it means to be human. I mean, if we are to look at the history of humanity over the last 100 or 200 years, it's a story told in technology. You can understand the culture. You know, when uh, I look at when Eastmoreland was, um, you know, first made by Chandler Egan in 1918, there was, you know, model. T-Fords were being made in Portland, but there was horse and carriages on the streets as well. Yeah.
0: Cool transitional period in time.
1: And this is where I wanted to bring your expertise to bear. And, and of course, many listeners already know the society of golf historians.
0: It's fun. Yeah. Bringing on different golf historians, bringing on subject matter experts, diving into weird and quirky stories. Sometimes it's by narration, telling stories of, most people don't know, I'd say 99% golfers don't know, but then also trying to find stories that are very human, right? So it, it really doesn't matter, uh, if you're a golfer, if it's a human story, because I think we all like to hear the struggle. We all like to hear the sad stories and the,
1: and the triumphant ones. Today, I was hoping you might share a little bit more information with the listeners on, um, the, types of clubs that they were using because in the early days of golf of course uh they were golfers were literally just figuring it out as they played yeah and probably not that well (laughs) i mean to be fair yeah and i and i mentioned in hole uh three that golf is a competition so most of them are playing in match plays yes so even though you know, they might not be playing to par. They didn't even have the concept have of par, par really. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it wasn't even there. Um, having a club might give you an advantage in a match. Oh, yeah. So having some newfangled tool in your bag or in your caddy's hand could make a difference. And I was hoping we could cover some of those rescue clubs. The clubs... That were created yeah. to get you out of those challenging situations, the hazards, sunken roads, all of the things that were part of early golf courses because life was happening all around them. So they had to get around awkward lies, like many of us do today. Probably more so back then, to be fair. I mean, you don't you don't find
0: too many tire tracks running through your golf course that often. Or bike tracks probably be a better example.
1: Yeah. You don't. Sometimes you do. Yeah, that's true. Depends uh, on your course. With cart tracks, honestly, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's, one yeah. of, it's actually a pet but You peeve can hit on a cart
0: track, right? That's, a, you know, what, eight inches wide or something like that.
1: Exactly, yeah. It's not a wagon wheel. No, it's track. not a wagon rail. That's for sure. Right. Or or hoof prints even yeah. from a horse or yeah. something.
0: So the feathery ball, almost all of your clubs with the exceptional one, which we're going to get into, the rut iron, uh, your trouble club, would have been uh, wood. Right. They'd be long nose. And I mean, long like, you know, from head to toe, maybe six inches in length, uh, very narrow at the top, wooden head and club with an extremely whippy shaft. I mean, you could I I have a couple of them. And if if you just waggle them, it seems like the head and the shaft are are six inches separated in a soft waggle. I mean, they are they're flippant. It's a good way of putting it. And um, yet they had one metal club generally speaking, which was your rut iron, which was to get you out of, it's called that, because you got out of wagon ruts. Um, one thing to know for, about the gutty era and the feathery era is the majority, if not all courses in Scotland were public land, which is why uh, St. Andrews to this day closes down on Sunday, essentially becomes a public park. But even back then, uh, in the early days of golf, when you know we had, you know, hundreds of people playing, maybe a thousand people playing, but certainly not tens of thousands of people playing. It was still a rare fringe sport, even for then, And it would be quite common to be playing golf across the old course and have a gentleman and a horse and buggy going right across the course, minding their own business, creating these wagon tracks that were maybe, I don't know, two and a half inches in in width. And so what would happen is you're playing golf and the ball falls into that um, wagon rut. And you have to play it where it lies. And you got to play it where it lies. There's no relief back then. So you have these wooden clubs, these wooden six-inch in diameter uh, golf clubs, and they they won't work. So we have this uh, rut iron that is invented, which is, you know, it's small. I mean, they're two and a half inches, uh, you know, from toe to heel, sometimes two inches. They weigh an insane amount i have one in my collection that is if if we're looking at modern swing weight uh, most of your clubs folks at home are about a d2 um i believe this thing was i think it was a g9 yeah (laughs) it is i'm holding one in my hand it is it is an instrument a blunt force instrument of which you could hurt somebody
1: that well that's how i described it to someone it's a little bit like a a ball peen hammer. Yeah. They're not big, but they're heavy because it's still got a little bit of a, of like a scoop of like a short, like almost like an ice cream scoop. And some of them were even concave a little bit, right? Correct. Yes. Yes. That's
0: absolutely correct. And they're just, they're unbelievable instruments. That's what they are. I mean, they're just really, they're beautiful because they're really, if you think about it, it's the first time blacksmiths get involved with the game before the game is completely woodworkers and archery, you know, arch ar- people who make bows right. for archery. Um, those are 100% of the people involved with golf. And then you get this small s- sub segment just for the rut iron or the track iron. Sometimes it's called that. And that all changes with the gutty. So you move from this fringe sport, leather golf ball, stuff with goose feathers. You get this percha ball, which by the way, folks is hard as a rock. I mean, gutta percha, it's made out of a Malaysian tree, the sap from a Malaysian tree, and it's a form of rubber, but there is nothing even remotely close to any kind of rubber you'd think of. There is literally... Kind of like
1: a marble, like a lighter marble?
0: Yeah, it's like, let me see. I've got one. I have one on my desk here.
1: Because Drew asked me about that. He's like, oh, if you're playing hickory, aren't you playing gutties and i was like no i don't think anyone plays gutties i like no there are yeah there's lunatics out there i'm one of them or have been one of them i should say i've actually founded a tournament where
0: we played by the rules of 1895 on an 1895 course with 1895 clubs and 1895 balls wow and then you'd wear like i had a four-piece suit to wear.
1: Oh, so you've got the dapper side <laughs> yeah, I of mean, it too. You can go. I'm nuts. definitely. I mean, I'm it's... golf is a game of fashion is coming up in the back yeah. nine. I've decided not there to make go. that part of the, the the kind of the philosophical sort of humanity of it. Even though fashion is also a part of humanity. Yeah, it's what you make of it, right? Did you bag a rudder iron? For these events,
0: uh, I did, yeah. For the gutties, so I would have. Uh, so let's go into the clubs. You were just asking about it. So we we move into the gutty area. So yeah, which is basically 1848 to let's just say 1900. Now the gutty actually lasted in some
1: cases a little the, bit longer. Yeah, the var.
0: Yeah, the people who held on to like John Lowe, right? He's going to hold on to that damn thing as long as he wants to. You know, he is the
1: traditionalist of he is. The fried egg of our time. Well, he was a modernist traditionalist, though, oh, because he was yeah, advocating yes, for yes. strategic design and advocating Absolutely. for.
0: Well, he's is he a modernist, though? He's really I, I don't know if he's a modernist so much is that he was probably the first to speak to the design concepts and strategies that were already established on Scotland's great golf course. In my
1: opinion, he is a modernist. Yeah, he just had a tragic flaw In his philosophy, which was he could not embrace the Haskell because the ball is so critical to everything else that he was doing that it was upending his entire. I mean, it's the same argument we're having today, right? It's the same argument, but I would almost say it's like he's almost like a guy that's like super into computers and you know, writing stuff and then the smartphone comes out and he's like, I'm not giving up my palm <laughs> right. pilot. What do you, this smartphone thing isn't going to go anywhere, <laughs> you know, but he's like totally like wrote like at the agile methodology yeah. and he's like totally like, you know, super nerding out. But,
0: but if, you know, if you think about it, his argument had more legs, perhaps more than our argument today. I mean, if people are gaining 50 yards, like, the average duffer picks up 50 yards with a brand new ball tomorrow.
1: I mean, I think
0: people would fight
1: that. Well, that's what he yeah. says. He, Yeah, he loses his mind. I mean, his the reason he loses his mind, and I read about this quite a bit in Golf is a Ball Game, so I won't reread it, but he essentially says a 17-year-old kid can now hit the ball further than me without ever touching a club. Yeah. He basically says old, pe- old guys that are washed up are now hitting the ball just as far as they ever have or further. The same thing we're hearing now. Yeah.
0: Well, is it one of those things where you adapt or die by it, right? You know, because you're getting killed by
1: everybody you play because they're going 50 yards. Well, he's totally into the match game. Yeah, he, he, there's no way he didn't start playing a wound ball, in my opinion. Well, you stop seeing the wound ball.
0: That's one of the major issues. I mean, when the Haskell comes out, you only had a short period of time you had
1: adapted or you had to hoard a bunch of balls because they just stopped making them. Right. So let's talk about the ball then back to the clubs. So the ball actually created a revolution in the clubs because now now the ball is jumpy and it goes in the air. So there's, there's multiple things that happen.
0: When you play the feathery ball... Um, you didn't have as many breaks. You didn't break a lot of wooden clubs. Uh, the gutty, um, while inexpensive compared to the feathery, uh, was much harder. Like I said, it was like hitting a rock. And you know, when you play it today, it feels like you're pushing a pill that's really a rock down the fairway. So what happens is you have a couple different things. You have a ball that's more durable. So now these blacksmiths, are, you know, getting more involved outside of just making a rut iron. Uh, and then we have, you know, the game changing from the sense of, okay, we don't need these wooden clubs. We can play these steel instruments, which are more durable, uh, hit the ball just as far and allow a different series of shot rather than a sweeping shot. We can actually take more of a divot because we're hitting it down with a, a metal, a piece of metal rather than a piece of wood. And so what happens is uh, we start substituting uh, the wooden clubs for, for steel and we get a – I think people I think look back at it and it seems like we don't have enough clubs. We had uh, a play club, which would be essentially your driver. You'd have – in the 1880s, uh, which I've mentioned before, but the 1880s, one of my favorite clubs is a Brassy. Uh, we think it was invented. I think there's some arguments here. was invented at Musabra Links uh, down Musa, or – I'm sorry, a Mrs. Foreman's Hole. Um, which is a really cool hole that had a pub at the end of it. Uh, if you slice your ball out into the street, the cobblestone Street, they people going out with wooden clubs would shatter their club <laughs> shatter their club because they're hitting it against. So they put a brass plate onto essentially a spoon and
1: invented this new club, the brassy. Yeah, they don't break the clubs anymore. they just break their wrists.
0: Yeah. Yeah, break <laughs> your wrists. And then you'd have a spoon, which was I guess you'd call like a three or four wood today from a loft standpoint. And now these are still long nose clubs in your woods. They've changed a little bit, but not a lot. They're probably not six inches from heel to toe, but they're still like four and a half to five. They're still long nose for sure. And the clubs shafts, you're starting to see a little bit more of a stiff shaft because again, you have a ball that can take a little bit more oomph than you could with the feathery, right? Because again, you didn't want to pop a seam and you know spray out a ball and feathers all over the place that costs as much of a driver. So then we get into the irons. So we essentially have these 10-degree in increments between clubs. We had a clique that was essentially a 20-degree club. We had a general iron, which is a 30-degree club. We have a 40-degree club, which is called the lofter, which is a really cool instrument. It's a little bit longer from heel to toe with 40 degrees aloft, and it's it's quite versatile. And in those early days, we don't get the Neblick yet, but we have the rut iron still in the bag. And then you have a long nose putter.
1: Yeah, and and what I what you and I talked about on the phone that I want to go into in a little bit more depth is the evolution of the sand wedge. Yeah, because you it's brought, a fascinating
0: story. Yeah, you yeah. brought
1: up the idea that the rud iron is really the ancestor.
0: Oh yeah, it's the hazard club. There's zero doubt. Yeah, absolutely zero doubt. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny because. I think there's an argument that they had it right, you know, in those early, you know, 1850s, 60s, 70s with the rut iron, and then we went backwards before we went forward. So, you want me to jump right in? Yeah, let's go into it. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, we just talked about it a little bit what the rut iron is. So, again, just to refresh everybody, it's this um, amazing instrument uh, that has this massive wide sole. It's an incredibly heavy club. Uh, it's made by a blacksmith. Uh, we actually popped the head off of uh, my Carrick red iron that I have here, and it's, it's. You don't see this in the 1920s or 19, you know, tens or even early 1900s. But when you peer into the hazel, you can actually see where the blacksmith hammered the steel over. Like you can see it overlapping. You know, they figure it out later on how to make that smooth, but the these early instruments are quite rugged. And so what I find fascinating about the rut iron and what I I think is amazing as much as anything is I have yet to find a rut iron that doesn't have a considerable amount of bounce. I have, I probably looked at 50 rut irons. There's not a lot of rut irons out there anyway, but um, I'm the one I'm holding now this Carrick. I actually had it measured and it has 25 or 24 degrees of bounce. And so for you folks that don't know what bounce, bounce is what you need out of the sand. Um, if we were talking about a lot of bounce with a modern sand wedge, generally speaking title, I think is 10, 12 degrees, uh, is bow- of bounce. And what that is, is you have a leading edge and a trailing edge of your wedge. Um, bounce is where we have the trailing edge is closer to the ground than the leading edge. So if you were to put it on the ground, you know, straight up and down, if it has bounce, the leading edge will be up in the air. It will not sit flat straight up and down. And so in the case of this rut iron and many others I've, I've measured, I've measured them, wow, this one's the most I've seen probably at 24. I think the least amount I've seen is like 15. So that's still as much or more bounce than any modern sandwich that I've ever seen. So what they did, I, they, I think they just instinctively realized when hitting out of a wagon rut that you are going to bottom out this club. And that, in doing so, the bounce would, you know, keep it from digging into the wagon rut. Right? Rather, it would bounce it out. Now, again, we're talking about Scotland here. It's you know, 1850s, 60s, 70s. You know, we're not really playing golf anywhere else but Scotland, and all the courses then are sand-based. You know, they're Lynx courses. So essentially, not why you're not hitting out of a quote-unquote bunker, you are hitting a sand-based material underneath the turf. And be it instinctively or by accident, they understood or walked into the idea of having bounce on this rescue club. And to me, that is absolutely fascinating because what follows the rudd iron is the niblick. So we have, you know, these rudd irons anywhere from about 50 degrees to 40 degrees, 24 degrees bounce to like 15 degrees bounce. So a lot of bounce on these things, small little heads. And, we transitioned that club into the niblick, and I have yet you. I, I have yet to see one. I don't think there's one that exists. These niblicks all have dig soles. They are exact opposite of what we just talked about.
1: So the leading edge is lower and the trailing edge is higher. Right. So when I'm, you lay I'm actually down, looking at one now. It's it's yeah. almost like a sharp. Oh yeah. Knife, so that so so bounce. If you've got bounce. The leading edge is higher and it's, it's got like a rounded bottom. This, this I'm reading about it as, as this was developed as what's called the cut shot where you're literally almost driving a wedge like, and by wedge, I mean an angled like, um, ax into the sand. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's exactly right. So uh, the, the most effective way to hit a niblick, a niblick shot out of a bunker is to just catch it as clean as you can because that thing's going to dig. I mean, it's, it's all leading edge. It's going to dig. If you had bounce on it, you could take sand, much like we do in modern times, and throw the sand up with the ball. So when you put your ball into a hazard, uh, a sand hazard here, uh, in the pre-1900 era, you were in serious trouble. First of all, there weren't rakes. So it was about as rugged as you could get. Um, As a matter of fact, I have this beautiful painting that hangs above my head. Um, I got this from Archie Baird, who just passed away uh, in 2019. He was the great uh, historian. He had a a, a museum in in Golan. And it's of uh, Musselbrats, 1894 by John Smart. And the name of the painting, there's two gentlemen uh, in the bunker. One's the caddy and the other one's the player. And it's, It's called, the bunker, by the way, was called Pandemonium for short. It was called Pandy. And the title is, In Pandy, Play Two More. (laughs) Because you're not getting out of that bunker. You're going to have to play two more shots. So, And that was what bunkers were. They were really rugged. I mean, they were nasty. And you had this instrument that was effectively useless unless you had this perfect pick of getting it anywhere near the hole. And so it was a true, you would avoid it too. I mean, there are stories of old Tom Morris and Alan Robertson and some of the great, even Willie Park, uh, Willie Park Jr. playing. And they would avoid hazards no matter what because to put it in a hazard with these instruments was a loss of a hole. You did not know if you were going to get it out, let alone get it close. So what we have here is we have, you know, this rut iron, whether they knew it or not, instinctively or not, they had an instrument that was better out of a bunker than they do 30 years later with a niblick. Heck, that's not even true. 60 years later with a niblick. I mean, you can go all the way in the 1920s and they're still playing clubs, even though they have, you know, now they have grooves. We're still playing clubs that are effectively. I wouldn't say useless, but extremely difficult to exert yourself and get a ball out of a bunker
1: with any kind of accuracy. Something changed, right? So they, there was insight in the rud iron, but then the Niblick actually was A, a step back. Technology
0: speaking, it's a step back. It's a larger head, but it's a step backwards.
1: And as I was reading here, like, you know, Bobby Jones was almost like, Hit by someone? Oh yeah, absolutely. Trying to hit that shot in one of the British Opens, people are familiar with when you kind of skull a ball and it just zips straight across the green. We
0: almost—I mean, we're talking out of a bunker. That's almost the technique. Wow, right? Because otherwise, it's digging. It doesn't have the bounce, so you're trying to pick it, and if you pick too much off of that, it's a dead
1: skull. You know, that's how Jones could get killed. Yeah. So what? What was the innovation? And as I understand it, it. Came from America. Yes and no. So, okay. I, it really depends on how you
0: look. So, you could argue that the sand wedge existed before Gene Sarazen, quote unquote, invents it. I would say that Gene Sarazen popularized or rediscovered it. So, it, it really depends on how you look at it. If you are de- referring to the sand wedge as a niblick with a flange on it and maybe some flange with bounce. There's an argument to be made that the Maxwell patent of the 1910s, which was a British patent, uh, it was a really cool patent. I used to have a club in my office here. but they, So they decided they were going to add this flange to the bottom of the clubs. And they, by the way, they were from Cleek, which is like a one iron, all the way through the niblick. The patent ran all the way through. So you had flange clubs going through the entire set, but they were still working on, uh, what the weight of the head should be. So the Maxwell patent by adding the flange is really cool because what they did is to make up for the weight they were putting in the sole, They were boring holes into, uh, the hazel. So any Maxwell patented club has these holes going through the hazel down to the, you know, the hickory shafted club that's stuck in the middle of it. So they were taking weight out of the hazel and putting it in the head. And so you could argue, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but there are Maxwell patented Niblicks that have bounce. So technically speaking to say you invented it would be saying it was the first. That's extremely difficult to say because there were Maxwell, but now did they realize the effectiveness of that club? I don't think they did because if they did, there would be a heck of a lot more of them from 1910 to 1932.
1: Right, so they so they they did some innovation. They were coming up with new ideas. They didn't necessarily know what they had, and it took a, you know, a, in the very nascent kind of PGA tour, Gene Sarazen sure. in, is this 1932? 1932, But see now, right before okay. that, you
0: had another invention, which is one of my favorites, um, and that was the Walter Hagen, um, the, the Walter Hagen sandwich. It was a concave. Sandwedge it. Oh, I'm looking at it right yeah, now, actually. I'm actually I'm holding mine, but if you look at it, and folks, if you're listening to the podcast, I suggest you Google this. So Walter Hagen Concave Sandwedge. To my knowledge, it was the first club to be called a sandwich. So it had that. Like mm-hmm. it literally says sandwich on the back. It's patented, all that stuff. It has a severely uh, concave face uh, with a massive flange. So it seems like to me that they're starting to appreciate the effect of weighting the club uh, closer to the sole. They're putting the weight down it to get the ball up. The convex part, I'm assuming they're thinking
1: this is an instrument that's going to scoop the ball out of the sand. Now, the con Yeah, so by concave, it's got it's got that look of like a rut iron in a way where it's got like an ice cream scoop. It's like, like an ice cream scoop. That's exactly a great it is, way This to one, it. this one looks like an ice cream scoop as yeah, well. It's a yeah, a big
0: old ice cream scoop, larger than a rut iron from you know from a size standpoint, from heel to toe. Big old ice cream scoop. Maybe looks like a spoon, like a massive spoon.
1: You could call it. Yeah, um, I mean it really does. I'm looking at one shot, and from the top, it looks like a spoon. In fact. I wonder if we could jump in our time machines, whether Hogan Hagen was, uh, you know, inspired by an ice cream scoop. Be. It point. looks
0: like if you hold it to the side, man, it's a spoon and it yeah. has a massive flange on it. Now, again, mus- much like the inventions prior, it is a dig sole, not a bounce sole. So once again, we're getting this idea that this flange is going to help, but it's got two or three degrees of dig. So it's not using the flange like you'd want it to use. Now, the other issue it had, so you have this club that digs in the sand rather than bounces out of it. The other main issue, which is one of my favorites, is if you look at the club, or let's just think about it. I mean, you're looking at the photos. It's a concave club. So think about the precision to hit the shot you want to hit. If you hit the the club on the low end, because it's convex, it's going to go extremely high. If you hit the middle of the club face, it's going to go a heck of a lot lower. It's going to be almost like a line drive. And if you hit the ball high off the face, it's going to go down. So I mean, for the precision of using this club, it really takes an expert to master it. And this club is only used for the sand, for out of the sand. Now, the coolest story I can tell you about this club, the most famous story, is in uh, 1930. So this this club's patented, I believe, in 1929. It comes into play really in 1930. 1930. In Bobby Jones' first event, he's playing the Savannah Open. And after the tournament, he notices that Horton Smith, the future 1934 winner of the first Masters, is getting along quite well out of the bunkers. And Jones talks to him about this new instrument he has. And Horton Smith takes his Hagen concave wedge, sand wedge, and he gives it to Bobby Jones. He realizes that Bobby Jones is about to go off to the United Kingdom to play in the British Amateur Open Championship. And he gives him this, this sandwich. So Bob Jones goes over. Is this
1: the year of the Grand Slam? This is
0: the Grand Slam year. So Bobby Jones has 14 clubs in his bag. And he adds a 15th for his trip to, over wow. to the United Kingdom. And he plays Sandy Andrew Andrews where he plays. What was the club limit at that year? There were, there were no limits at that time. No limits, yeah. Not yet. to okay. mid to late 1930s. So you could have, I mean, okay. there were plenty of, like, Harry Cooper had, you know, 25 clubs. Hagan was known to have. A ton. As a matter of fact, if you really want to know why we have 14 clubs today, there's another article I did out on Twitter. You actually can blame. I actually found the president of the USGA blaming Walter Hagen. He saw him at what stroll with like 25 clubs. And he said, enough is enough. Um, and, and basically makes this 14 club limit. So Jones goes over there, takes this, you know, amazingly weird, you know, concave wedge, hits an amazing shot to save uh, a shot on the road hole. Uh, to essentially win the British Amateur, it was the first ever, the only time he won the British Amateur. He had lost all uh, attempts prior to that, and he got out of the
1: road, the, yeah, the road hole. Yeah, the road hole. Bunker. Yeah, the yeah. most difficult bunker yeah. in all of really, you know, sports. Sure, especially back or, then. Again, you're golf. thinking
0: about instruments that are ill suited for the for the job of getting it out, and he hits one tight. You know, saves the hole and ends up winning the British oh. Amateur, wins the Open Championship, and then for whatever reason. And my guess is, again, quote-unquote precision as he's practicing with this thing, when he plays later in that year uh, at Interlock and, and Marion for the U.S. Open and for the U.S. Amateur, he abandons the club. And he, he plays his regular 14 clubs. And so that's the most famous use of that Hagen Sand wedge uh, is his two victories, one that you know he had never won before the British Amateur, and, of course, the Open Championship. And, and these are the last, you know, two of the last four majors he wins in his career. So I just, you know, I, I love that story because I, I think it's very romantic. And then in 1931, uh, the USGA bans the concave sandwich. So it is one of the. Right. So a, a concave
1: of, club is not legal. Correct. We, yeah. I, right. we, men- we talked about that when we were talking about cliques and putters because, you know, we brought up the idea of a Happy Gilmore putter. Sure. And a hockey stick might not actually be legal because it's concave. Oh, yeah. If it is, uh, like a hockey stick is got a little bit of concave-ness in the the face. And so therefore, really wouldn't actually be legal. Yeah. Darn. Potentially. (laughs) Potentially. Darn. Yeah,
0: yeah, so fast forward, we go, uh, it's banned 1931, the very next year, uh, Gene Sarazen is, and this is the story you hear from Gene Sarazen is, He's hanging out with his friend, Howard Hughes, and he's really, he's up, you know, in some of these flights flying around with Howard Hughes, and he's looking at how the the wings work on the plane, using air to move it up and down, and if, if you're to believe the stories that he's told, this inspires him to go home, essentially, to his shop. He's playing Wilson clubs at the time, and he starts soldering on uh, metal. Onto the back of a sandwich, essentially creating sandwiches that have true bounce. So it has this flange like Hagen's, but for the first time, he is purposely looking at adding bounce to these clubs to help getting out of uh, sand, uh, out of bunkers.
1: Well, and I love, I love the part of this story. So this was new to me. Yeah, that he he came up with this idea. From flying with Howard Hughes and looking at the 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 air the airplane wings, yeah. And for listeners, there may be some younger listeners out there that may not be entirely familiar with Howard Hughes. He was one of the most famous uh, and eccentric yeah. airplane designers yeah. in the 30s, leading into World War II. He is in many ways, if you're familiar with Iron Man, I would say that Howard Hughes is like Tony Stark's father. Ooh, that's really a good one. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think I think I think they did base Tony Stark's father off And if
0: of I'm Howard not mistaken, Hughes, so... I believe the spruce goose is an organ up there with you. I believe it's it. absolutely yeah. yeah.
1: If uh, it's it's actually airplane. I think you can stop by on your way to Bandon if you want to go check it out. So Yeah, very cool. I have always just drone straight to Bandon, so I have not seen the Spruce Goose, so I'm usually pedaling. To the metal. <laughs> I,
0: I have. I actually stopped.
1: Yeah, you catch on the way home. That's the kicker.
0: I used to live in Oregon. Did you know that?
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, you were in Portland. Yeah. You played Eastmoreland. Yeah. And yeah, I love Eastmoreland. Yeah. Yeah, you got to come play Eastmoreland again with me.
0: Yeah, I was nuts. I used to drive from Portland, get up first thing in the morning, drive down, play Band in a Pacific. That's back when there was only Band in Pacific, and I drive home
1: afterward. One of the things that I thought about an actual hole as a representation of the hole that we're, that we're reviewing. One of the holes that I was thinking about was 16 on old Mac because it's got, and also you and I talked about that's the hole where it's the blind second shot over the mound.
0: Yeah. Is that the Alps hole out there?
1: The Alps hole. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite. I'm a big Seth Rayner McDonald fan. Yeah. It's from Prestwick. Yeah. The Alps
1: at Prestwick is
0: the 17th hole.
1: Oh, is that is that is that it is that yes. what it is is that what old is old Mac is really just a recreation of a lot of
0: yeah it, it is a homage by um it's an homage of uh, Charles Blair McDonald and Seth Rayner's designs which were essentially um, homage holes to some of the greatest holes in Europe so I don't know if you know the story of National Golf Links of America but uh, Charles Blair McDonald literally redesigned what golf is in America when he built National Golf Links of America and what he did was he saw all these terrible golf courses across the country that were archaic and by the way he designed some of them so he's not free of guilt here and he had this idea of recreating the strategic elements of some of the greatest golf holes in the world and by the way he's talking about you know Scotland England etc and so he picked out these ideal holes, uh, one of them being the Alps hole, which is a blind shot In, at Prestwick on the 17th hole. is a, um, a, um, It's a blind shot into a par four with a punch bowl green. Is it like a dog leg? Like, like it's a slight dog leg, back? but yeah. It's, it, the idea slight is like leg, just yeah. having the blind shot into a punch bowl green with a massive bunker, which I believe was called the Sahara at Prestwick fronting that blind shot. So
1: I guess it is an appropriate hole for for this topic because there is a big bunker garden on the back end. yeah.
0: So yeah, Yeah. if you play old Mac every hole or probably all but a couple, and I haven't played old Mac, so I can't tell you this. Uh, Jim Urbina, by the way, designed old Mac, uh, one Mm -hmm. of Tom Doak's associates at the time. So Tom Doak and Jim Urbina and Jim Urbina was on the show. And I don't know if you ever saw the, the special we did for the golf channel, where we talked about the long lost legend of the Lido Club. And Jim Urbina and I walked uh, Charles Blair McDonald's, you know, this world famous design. It was Alistair McKenzie's first ever hole that he designed in the United States, which is now the Lido competition. And we walk this course, which has been abandoned. It's a parking lot, a school, and a bunch of houses on the beach on the Atlantic Ocean. And Old Mac is essentially that. So you, sh- you should look into it because it's a really cool story. And then I think the next time you play it, you'll go, here's the, r- there's a road hole out there and there's, you know, there's an Eden hole, which is also from St. Andrews. So
1: pretty cool. Well, and I found out too, number 10. Yeah. Number 10 actually, I think is the recreation of the road hole. And I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, I always, in fact, I talked about that a lot in golf is a game of the land where I talk about really that second shot is fantastic. True. One of the most challenging, it's a challenging yeah. test because it's such a long shot and it's a plateau green and the bunker to the left and the real drop away. Is that how the road, I've never played I the have, road hole. Is yeah. there a drop away in the back of the road yeah, hole? Yeah, so essentially you're, you're driving the it.
0: Uh, the ideal placement for the shot is you hit the shot over the road hole, which used to be like uh, sheds before the, the hotel was there. So you hit it over the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, um, the, uh, hotel. You're aiming – the best aim is for the right side of the fairway, which is completely blind. The bailout is left. So a lot of people go left, but that then brings in the road hole bunker, which is this treacherous bunker fronting the green. And then you have this ah, – it's not really a kidney-shaped uh, green, but it, it's, it's tilted from um, from the right to the left. It's you know sideways rather exactly. than – Exactly. No, no, that's exactly – And then beyond that, you have right. this drop-off. Yep. And then you have the road in the background. And the road hole wall, which you see, I've seen so many famous shots right. oh, off. Oh, of.
1: that's why you get near the wall because you went off the back and it kicks yeah. down near the wall. Yeah,
0: oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's one of the great designs in in all of golf. But I, I like I said, you pick if you're picking uh, the Alps hole at Old McDonald. Uh, the Alps is one of my favorite golf holes in the world. Um, if you ever get the chance, folks, um, Fisher's Island has one of the most beautiful Alps holes you'll ever see blind shot again into a punch bowl green and it's the it's literally on an island so you are surrounded by the Atlantic oh, wow. Ocean That's on all interesting.
1: sides yeah so so, so yeah, in this particular hole, hole. It, it evokes what I imagine so you know I've come to appreciate old Mac I used to play it for years and not like it because it's such a difficult test but now it's actually grown on me enough to the point where it's one of my favorites and On this particular shot, it's you have to scale a a, a large mound, an Alp, as it were. It literally looks like a Yeah. And you can't can't see see the the green green at all. all. And it's very you potentially could drive driver to go like and play it like a dog leg, but there's enough hazards around there that it that's not even close to really a good idea. And when you hit your shot there is a huge bunker on the other side of the hill guarding the green, but then there's also a bunker up on the right, and and then there's one also over the back, and so the green is big, and you hit it, and it sort of cross your fingers as you you know everybody then walks around.
0: Yeah, as you as you jump around, yeah, go oh and, and the, yeah at Presswick you have to go over the hill,
1: so you literally don't know till you get to the top. Yeah, exactly. When you see one ball in the green but there's four of you, you know, you're just like, "Okay, what's going on?" Of course, we all think it's our ball, must be the one on the green. <laughs> That's right. Um, Mine's close. Let's not even look at it. Yeah. And uh but then you but if but if you're in the sand trap, you've got to get out. And so in 32 Gene Sarazen came out with his own version of a sand wedge by soldering on Yeah a bigger flange essentially to an existing niblick like wedge yeah, into the, wedge.
0: yeah, onto a Wilson niblick. And I, the story of this is just as good, by the way, do you want to hear this story? Please. It, also one of my favorites. So, um, Gene Sarazen has this, you know, uh, the real sandwich, like let's call it the first purposely built, uh, with bounce, uh, sandwich. And he's got it, you know, on his, on this ship going across the Atlantic to go play in the open championship. And he's talking to Walter Hagen and Walter Hagen has now won four open championships. He is the greatest American uh, golfer to have played in Scotland. Bobby Jones won three opens by uh, Walter Hagen won four. So he is the grand champion. He is also passed, you know, his, his winning years by at least he hasn't won an open in three years. So is going
1: American up- ever surpassed that. Oh, yeah. Tom Watson has five. There we go. And almost six. I was rooting for him so hard for that six.
0: Yeah, that's true. Oh, God, don't get me started on that. I I still I cried during that thing. But yeah, Tom Watson has five, uh, which is obviously remarkable. Almost six, which would have tied him with Harry Varden, by the way. Ah. So he's, he's on this ship, and he's talking to Walter Hagen, and Hagen's kind of giving him a hard time. He's like, listen, you'll never win the Open Championship without a great caddy. I've won four open championships. Tell you what, why don't you use my caddy, Skip Daniels. So, you know, Gene's kind of, you know, blown away by it. He's like, gosh, that's great, you know. It's great. So, he plays in the Open Championship and he has this amazing time getting out of bunkers with these new instruments. Well, the kicker was that as Jones played the or Jones, as Sarazen played the tournament, he kept his sand wedges, his sandwich upside down. So the grip was coming out of the bag, not the head. And he did that because only the year prior, the concave wedge had been banned. And he was afraid that tournament officials were going to see it and ban
1: the club. Wouldn't allow him to play it. Right. So Hagen's, Hagen's club had been banned.
0: Yeah. And so now we have Sarazen in the tournament. He's got his, he's literally like head down. He's got the grip sticking out of it. And so nobody knows he's got this, you know, secret weapon in his bag. Nobody. And he wins the tournament. Hagen's been watching him the whole time. And he goes up to Skip after the thing when, you know, Gene Sarazen's giving his speech. He's like, you know, Skip, what? I, I saw him hitting the ball out of the bunker. It was, you know, this is amazing. And he goes, yeah, he's got this new club in there. He's like, I'd sure like to see it. And so he, you know, goes in and grabs his bag, pulls it up upside down. And Hagen studies the thing, right? He's really taking a look. Now, Hagen, at this time, has his own company. It's L.A. Young. He's making, you know, obviously it's cl- he made the concave wedge out of L.A. Young. And apparently he doesn't even want to wait. So Hagen goes to William Gibson of Scotland and has six prototypes of this. It's called the hagen Own model. And it, so it's the first, you know, six sandwiches. Saracen's got one, and basically Hagen's just going out there and building this flange, which actually will bounce. And it's on a hickory shaft. So Sarazin's was on a steel shaft. Hagen's are on hickory. And William Gibson makes it. And, and like I said, I, I said this on one of my podcasts. But this, The shame of this is six were made. And at one time in my collection, I had four of them. To this day, I don't have one. Uh, one by one, people talk me out of them. Apparently, essentially, they just named a price that I couldn't say no to. So now I have none, whereas once I had four. But it's this amazing story of ingenuity and then copying. <laughs> you, know, you know, you could just see it like Hagen's like, whoa, like that idea. I'm just going to take that down the road to William Gibson and have a couple of those made for me. So and what's interesting about those Hagen concave, uh, not concave, those Hagen sandwiches, the own model sandwiches, is each one has a different amount of bounce. So we used have six of them. They're all a little bit different. So you can just think of it. I mean, like Hagen's got, you know, maybe one with 15 degrees of bounce, and maybe all the way down to like four degrees of bounce. And so he's experimenting, trying to figure out even further, you know, going a little bit past what Gene Sarazen and trying to figure out what's the best sandwich for his game, which again, gets back to that, the craftsmanship and the ingenuity of these early golfers. And I love those
1: stories. This time period is special because all of the players and all of the club makers had that kind of bespoke craftsman element. Now, really, in an era where Callaway is using, you know, AI to make club faces. And I think the early days of Metalwoods was actually, even though they were using kind of manufacturing, I think the very early days of Metalwoods have have some element of the artisan only because I think woods themselves had always had a more artisan flavor to them. You,
0: you were talking about um, the old McDonald and and using this as a whole to our example. I'm going to, I'm going to tie that in a little bit better for you. So when you mentioned that hole, the Alps, and I mentioned it was the seventeenth hole at Prestwick, and you're talking about the early days of golf, Prestwick, as you may or may not know, used to be a twelve hole golf course, and it was the first club, first course to host the Open Championship. Ah, which of course goes all the way back to the Gutty era. Definitely does. If that's a great, and you just instinctively knew that. When you brought up that, I hole. must have. I, maybe also like, because you yeah.
1: shared that beautiful photo, the most up close photo I've ever seen of the British Open belt.
0: Oh yes, yeah, isn't that fantastic?
1: It's I mean, absolutely just, fantastic.
0: Yeah, and the story behind it, like, look at those; those two caddies are going to die. <laughs> like the artist that put that ag- together, clearly is not a golfer.
1: Yeah, what I love about that belt more than anything is that it's a belt. Much like oh, yeah. a like a boxing belt or a rodeo absolutely. belt, yeah, it, it it really, in fact, you know, I I mean, I I think, you know, it it brings to mind, um, you know, Anthony Kim, you know, sure. that kind of oh yeah, you know, the big old belt, buckle. rocking rocking the belt, as absolutely. I I would like to see, uh, at some point, some a championship belt brought back into the fold. That really would be what the the tour championship should should do the tour yeah championship if you if you look at it like google sometimes
0: uh young tom morris and yeah. there is i mean there is a, a, a amazing photo of him wearing that belt and you can just see the the sense of pride and, and perhaps you know like cocksure attitude that he's got like almost like a smirk on his face you know yeah, his like thumbs are in the belt. I mean, oh, yeah, it is it's just like you know why I, I don't think it would go all the way around his, his waist if I remember right. He's actually holding uh, that thing up. But got it. You know, it was you know, it was the sense of pride when he retired that belt when he won three opens in a row. He ended up ended up winning four in a row before he died at the age of twenty four. But I mean that belt meant everything to the Morris family.
1: Yeah. The attitude of the winner and being able to, you know, yeah. strut and let the world know who's champion. That's never changed. Yeah. Championship golfer of the year. Absolutely. In hole number three, we talk about that in depth. I am hoping to talk to Stephen Proctor soon about uh, young Tom and his gambling oh, exploits. Love, Stephen. We're big gamblers here at the Eastmoreland club and we like to play money games and the hole yeah. three. So we're going to do a replay of hole three with Stephen Proctor and talk a little bit about what it was like for young Tom and the kind of gamblers of that era um, a little bit more. So that's, that's a little, you know, teaser to the future. Well, and, and
0: again, to tie that in young Tom, again, wins his three opens in a row at Prestwick, which goes back to your hole. But young Tom was also the first golfer perhaps in history that used a rut iron. Like we would use a sandwich. The one that was actually hitting that shot from the fairway, which nobody did because the head was so small. And the way he
1: pinched it, even with no grooves, he could put spin on the ball with the run iron. Oh, that's in 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 the movie. Yes, it is. Yeah, creating the spin shot, and he impresses all his friends. So that it was, was the run iron. A slightly real, true life story. Yeah, absolutely true. That's interesting. So I have I have a request for you for our follow up interview yeah. with you, or at least, and I'm sure you've already done a little bit, but it goes along the lines of this championship belt. One of the parts of the golf history that i found when i looked into the past was just the awesomeness of the trophies oh yeah like i when we play events you know it's true the money is nice but the hardware is really nice and i'm a bit of a traditionalist a silver cup yeah a big bowl you know, those are the kind of things that, shoot, even a silver golf club. Silver golf club is, of course, like the Leith golfers.
0: Speaking of that, I know I've got like this crazy golf collection, but I actually have a silver uh, Willie Park Senior 1870 silver putter on my desk right now. Oh, wow. I think weighs like 40 pounds. It's insane.
1: Was it a trophy or was it a play club? No,
0: nobody played with that thing. It was a trophy. That's
1: amazing. Well, I would love to dig into that a little bit more connor it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the 18 opportunities podcast yeah this was fun yeah and appropriate for the pick of the hole i think you just nailed it yeah thank you i've started to t- do that and what i found so actually i chose when i when uh when i say golf is made by the land i actually chose the 10th at old mac and i didn't realize it was the road hole because there isn't really a road there. Like There might be a little bit of a road, but now that I think about it, the shot over the bunkers and the gorse is like the replacement for the road in the shack, and I don't take that line. I should. Maybe I need to go back and take that line. If you you don't take that line, you're not playing it right. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, it's a tough line. But if you go out left, you bring the road hole bunker into play. If you go left, you got that crazy bunker for a long shot. Exactly. The reason I brought it up for golf is made by the land is because of the way the wind also is coming straight in. So we always play old Mac in the afternoon, which is really unadvisable. Yeah. The wind is always like in your face on most of, you know, abandoned. So you should probably play, you know, trails in the afternoon, but we like to play old Mac in the afternoon and just take a beating. And in that, in that whole, in particular, um, You know, I talk about the best shot I ever had, which was in a brutal wind in my face. And I had, gosh, probably like 211 in, but I ended up hitting a three quarter four iron. Right. Which my four only goes 195. So this three quarter four. Right, uh, right. Was designed though to be low spin and a lower trajectories because I needed a way to cut the wind. Yeah, roll it out. And yeah, and I don't know if the road hole does that too, but at this hole, at about 25 yards before the green, there's actually a a, a depression, and I was lucky enough to kind of catch the downslope, so it kicked forward, and I got you know just enough run for it to run up the elevated green. Right. To this day, I actually think that was one of the best approach shots. I can't say that I completely planned it. It was more out of just like knowing that any club that I tried right. to launch in the air was not like the wind would probably make my hybrid go 150, you know, or my three would, who knows where it could go, right? It could go anywhere. So I love it. Yeah. Play the ground, the ground game. Absolutely. Play the ground game exactly, and 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 that was a big part of you know the land was really about the links and all of that. So oh, you bet! I love it. I, I love the whole entire
0: idea of, of your podcast. I think it's fantastic, and I like I like the relation of eighteen holes. I really appreciate that in regards to the game. And by the way, I I, I listened to that. I love Malcolm Glad- Gladwell. By the way, and the only time I've ever been mad yeah at him is <laughs> when I listened to that that pod on golf. And I was like, I think he just missed it. You know, I just, you know, he thought it should be a park. It was
1: a park. That was the only parkland in all of Scotland was the links. Yeah. What's interesting is I'm not upset at Malcolm. Yeah. The ordinary golfer will get, that gets mad at all kinds of things is, is frustrating. But really, he inspired me. And I have a goal. The goal is that I will go golfing with Malcolm. Oh, there Fliwell. you go. I like that. Yeah. Or at least have a conversation with him yeah. on the 19th hole. I, you know, I, I think he'd lighten his stance. If you look at golf
0: only through that prism and you're just not aware of the sport and all the public opportunities there are to play and the outdoor exercise and, and the camaraderie and all those things. And you just look at through the prism of offense of a very private club and you don't know anything else about the, the benefits of golf and the, uh, You know, the opportunity for every type of person to play the game, I could see how you could have that narrow view. And I'm not knocking it because I think I've probably done that. It's no different than me driving by an office complex and saying, you know, that really should be a golf course. (laughs) We've all done that, right?